Welcome to Innovation Capital, presented by PatSnap. Here on Innovation Capital, we take a fresh, unfiltered look at some of the biggest topics shaping innovation today. Leave everything you know about innovation at the door, because you have now entered a universe where we turn established ideas on their head and ask the questions that fuel great innovation, growth and scalability. This is Innovation Capital. Hi, all, and welcome back to Episode 7 of Innovation Capital. This episode will look at the standards emerging in the area of intellectual property management and how it is impacting the innovation process. Our guest today, Donald O'Connell, will talk about the correlation between innovation and standardization, describing the current challenges, advantages, and drawbacks faced by innovators and IP professionals. You're going to absolutely love this episode. Without further ado, let's jump right in. Welcome, Donald, to Innovation Capital. So really excited to have you on board. I was uh, searching through my LinkedIn messages literally before we hopped on. I think the first time we dropped you a note was in September 2013. So it's been, wow, a lot's changed since then then in the world of IP. So really excited to have you on board and would love to kick off with just your story on how you ended up in the wonderful world of IP and innovation management, Donald. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's fun to go back and reminisce about how, how things were happening many years ago. Um, delighted to be here. Um, my story, uh, I should start by saying I, I'm not actually an, an attorney. I'm, I'm an engineer by background, so software engineer, work with companies like Atari and Philips and, and Nokia um, and moved up the traditional engineering ladder, so project manager, program manager, up to VP of R&D. My first interaction was with IP, I suppose, was when I was an inventor, so I had some patents to my name. I uh, had some interaction with IP attorneys who drafted and uh, filed and prosecuted those cases, but never really thought about what was happening or what would those patents become or how would they add value. I was a typical um, engineer, and yeah, I was happy to have patents to my name, but didn't think anything further. Um, as VP of R&D, I made the mistake of allowing some IP attorneys to occupy some unused offices in the building. It was still an R&D building, but we had some space for them, so I gave them a home. Um, but then, then shortly thereafter, found myself dragged into some IP disputes in the US. So I spent about a year of my life, I suppose, supporting a, a number of litigation uh, cases. Um often acting as a postman or a communicator between the attorneys at one side and the engineers at the other side, but was fascinating, with, found it fascinating to be involved in such a dispute. And suddenly it brought home to me that, well, actually those patents that myself and others had designed and developed years ago are now being used in anger. So it sort of opened my eyes to another side of IP. Then, um, for family reasons, other reasons, I wanted to move back to the UK. And uh, Nokia, the company I was working with, um, offered me the chance of becoming director of IP. Um, so a team of 160 attorneys, 120 paralegals. And um, spoke to one or two of my colleagues and decided, yes, let's, it, it, we need to change in direction. 
Um, I must admit the first few weeks of conversation with the attorneys was quite strange because they didn't speak like and act like engineers that I was used to managing. But um, it was an interesting opportunity. Basically, I was given a blank sheet of paper, in essence, by Nokia and told to go in and figure out what was involved in running a world-class IP department. So I had to sit back and we did a lot of benchmarking, did a lot of analysis to figure out, okay, well, what was going well in the department, but what areas need to be improved. And for the next seven years, um, was involved in a number of major change projects, everything from the way an IP department should interact with the inventors, the way an IP function should manage its relationship with outside IP firms with a network of about 80 firms all over the world, the way we should embrace technology, um, how to automate and use technology to be more efficient and effective, um, uh, looking at risk management, uh, because it shocked me that coming from R&D, where risk was sort of in our DNA, to come into an IP function where risk and risk management process wasn't so well developed. We were more reactionary, I would say, rather than proactive. To look at, for example, even things like how do we communicate to the C-suite executives about IP? What type of report should we be generating? What are the key things we should be telling them and so forth? So it was an interesting seven years. And then, uh, again, for personal reasons, my son had been very ill and I was sort of realizing that I couldn't keep up running a, a global function like that and I couldn't do all the travel. So I jumped ship in 2009 and um, set up an IP consultancy company, thinking that I would do pretty much what I was doing inside Nokia, but for other large multinationals. And that that's how it started out. But then, of course, things change. You get you meet different types of companies. And I had smaller companies asking for advice. I even had financial institutions and universities. So my, my consultancy company in, what is it now, 12 years, um, has also changed spots. It still does a lot of... Uh, it's a traditional consultancy work, IP audits, IP strategy work. We do a lot of education, but we've also started developing technology ourselves, more technology to support management as opposed to, um, so there's a difference, I suppose, between what we're doing with our technology. We're more interested in how you use technology to improve management, leadership, and governance of your IP. Um, so, and then I've always been interested in sort of, writing down my thoughts so in that time as well i've produced two books and i think i'm over 200 papers published at this stage so it's been an interesting journey but i still feel i'm learning about ip because it's it's a damn camp complex issue um it isn't simple unfortunately if you think about the different forms of ip the different processes the different ip models um so I don't think I'll ever stop learning about this stuff, but uh, that's my journey in a not-so-short nutshell. So from 2009 onwards, from when you left Nokia to launch your own venture around consulting, now spinning into this decade, where do you think we're at, Donald, in terms of all the major industries really understanding the intrinsic value of patents as an asset class because life sciences it's clear to see they intrinsically get it and you can see that in how the big pharma acquire businesses very much the acquisition thesis is around the technology of a biotech but the patent portfolio is definitely on the table as 
a key asset when placing a price on a small biotech business. But in other industries, it doesn't seem to be aligned in the same way. So in a broader sense, are we in the first innings of the board really understanding patent as an asset class? Or where do you think we are on the journey, Donald? Well, um, you brought up a, a cricket analogy there. I'll, I'll switch it over to more a football analogy because I'm, I'm probably more a football guy. Um, if you imagine in football, you've got the Premiership, the Championship, League One, League Two, lower divisions, uh, Southeast Division. If you were to plot the maturity of most companies on this IP maturity ladder, there's only a handful of companies who'd qualify for the Premiership. Yes, you might have a few pharma companies, um, but most companies would be down in the lower leagues. They're not that sophisticated. They, they, they don't quite yet understand what IP is about. For too many, I think, they see it as a legal issue. But yes, there's a legal component and a key. it's a key aspect of IP. But IP is... I see it more and more as a sort of management system for innovation and creativity. It's not the only management system, but it's it's an asset class. It is it can be if played right, give you a competitive advantage. It can come bite you and, and hurt you if you don't understand the risks. It is much more than just a legal issue. And I don't think that's quite understood. Now Where's the fault then? Why, why are all of those people down in the lower leagues and not in the premiership? I suppose we have to look in the mirror. The way we explain and educate and train people about IP needs a vast improvement, in my opinion. Too much of the training is still, well, what is a patent or what is a trademark or what is a copyright? It's the, it's the, the building blocks. And not enough of it is really about how do you play this game what is a strategy, an IP strategy? How does it bring value? How do you understand the value risk um, aspects of it? Um, maybe one reason why the education isn't so good is that IP tends to be populated with specialists rather than generalists. So the patent folks can talk about patents, but maybe not so comfortable talking about domain names or open source. The, Trademark people are good at talking about trademarks, but not maybe talking so good about patents. Um, so I think one problem is the the specialization of the IP community. Uh, a second issue maybe is that maybe many who are in IP have been trained a certain way. So if you look at the training a patent attorney gets, he's trained about how to get a patent and the intricacies and oddities of the patent prosecution process. Are they trained on how to educate non-IP people? Um, probably not. And, and education, I mean, you guys know well with things like when you're looking at um, um, the use of digitization of education. Training people is, is easier said than done. I mean, most of us who are in lockdown these days suddenly realize how challenging it is to teach children and um, just about the basics of maths and English and so forth. And um, hats off to teachers these days because I'm suddenly realizing it's a little bit more tricky than I thought. And, and the same applies to teaching about IP. You, you've got to really think about how do you train and what do you train? And how do you deliver it? And how do you 
make sure the audience gets it. So um, uh, long winded answer. I think that most companies are down the lower leagues, unfortunately. And I think we've got to look in the mirror in the IP community and say, well, actually, we've got to do a, we've got to step up our game. We've got to become a lot better at explaining what role IP plays. Now, it clearly does play a role. I mean, there's interesting research recently, and it's been produced a number of times, that if you value companies, the value of companies, take the value of the top Fortune 500 companies, 80% of the value is intangibles of one sort or another. Um, IP in there, but relationships, data, software, branding, reputation, etc. Um, so... And I think that that research is fairly reliable. You can argue as to whether the number is 80% or 79% or 81%. Regardless, it's a big percentage. I mean, you take the most valuable company, Apple, today. Most of the components in their products are made by somebody else. Most of the apps in their phones are made by somebody else. The products are made and outsourced to a third-party factory. So the most valuable company in the world doesn't make its own components, doesn't make its own software, and doesn't actually make the products. Okay, that's an exaggeration. It makes certain things. But it's still the most valuable company in the world. I mean, if that's not an, ex- an example of the value of intangibles, I don't know what is. And you can go down to the second company, the Googles, whatever. You suddenly realize, well, actually, the value is intangibles. It's in data, or process data, or algorithms, or brand, or patents, or whatever. So clearly, we should... It should be easy for us to explain the importance of IP and companies should be taking it seriously, but we're not. You go to lots of companies and you're you're stumped when you suddenly realize their IP strategy is in the back of a cigarette packet and it doesn't make any sense or the IP function is having a, a big challenge explaining to the other parts of the organization how they add value. Um, so something is not quite right yet. So we still have a long way to go to get to the ideal position. If you didn't, I mean, one uh, concrete way to illustrate the challenge we face is there's a lack of communication between the IP folks and the finance folks. IP, the IP isn't in the books. Um, It isesn't captured. So there's there's a disconnect there as well, which should be worrying to both the finance community and the IP community that, so, Donald, you mentioned some of those household names like Apple, Google, Amazon. If you look at yeah, the Fang Group, who pretty much command 75% of the market cap on the S&P 500, all of those businesses are all based around something that we talk about here at PatSnap a lot, Metcalfe's Law and network effects, predominantly now data network effects. So are you seeing any best practice around how people would protect or be proactive around IP, around data assets? Is that a is that something which is emergent or are we early? Anything you're, you're smelling around that space? Because if you look at all these phenomenal businesses that you've just mentioned, they're all based around network effects. Fundamentally, their foundation is Metcalfe's law and scaling around that. So is there anything emergent on that side of things? Um, I think the the data intense companies are, are they a, are aware that the data is extremely valuable. Um, in most cases, they're treating it as a trade secret. They may be 
patenting some of the associated algorithms and so forth, but in essence, they've realized the importance of both the raw data and the process data. Um, so, and it's not just those type of companies. We, we see um, you go into biotech, um, you go into companies that have very efficient production processes. So it may not be people-related data. It could be raw data to do with machinery, equipment, or whatever. There are a number of companies who begin to realize that data is critical, and that means it needs to be managed. It needs to, first of all, be protected, or maybe identified, first of all, to say, okay, we clearly recognize that this this is a valuable intangible asset in the company. Secondly, they need to protect it, so they're treating it uh, they're treating it like the way you should treat a trade secret, wrapping it in legal protection, technical protection, and administrative protection measures. Um, in some cases, obviously, they got to balance that with things like GDPR, but in essence, they see it as a valuable intangible asset. Um, and that's not just those companies we talked about, but I see it emerging in even companies that have that are maybe at first glance software companies. They're realizing that maybe the value isn't in the software code. Maybe it's in the associated data. Um, I saw this with a company I did work with a, a while back. I won't mention their name, but they're in the, the maritime space. Uh, they put they have sensors and, and computing technology they put onto ships to help them navigate more efficiently. And it was interesting to watch the journey they went on. In the beginning, they thought that the value was in sort of the sensors. Then they went to a second stage of thinking that the value really was in the computer software that was measuring these sensors. And then they went to a third stage of saying, well, to forget the sensors and the software, actually, it's this raw data and the process data. Um, so they kept updating their IP strategy and their, and their approach to intangibles to say, yeah, it's the data that's most valuable. It's not ignoring the value of the sensors and the actual software, but they've they've now I, they see themselves as a data company, even though when you're outside looking in, you see well they they put sensors onto ships, but they're a data company, and they've it was interesting to see them go through that journey and both the IP and legal function, understanding that they need to change their approach internally, but also then in their relationships with the ship owners and the, the fleet operators and, and everyone else they were dealing with in their ecosystem, that they realized actually data is critical here and, and they wrapped it in protection, even though maybe in phase one and phase two, they maybe had uh, not so, um, that everything was in place in terms of managing that data, but they got there. And then because they suddenly realized that was where the, the value was. I, I see it with um, food and beverage companies who suddenly realizing that actually certain things that they're doing either in production or whatever or in their engaging with their clients that data is valuable um where else um even a, a a pharma company we've been dealing with recently are at first glance they look like a traditional pharma company delivering drugs but actually there's a, one or two research groups inside in that in that facility that are developing apps so there's an app on the phone to, that accommodates a drug so that they can then prompt the user about how they administer the drug, any side effects, yada, 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 any, any issues. And, and they have software people in their pharma company. And I'm suddenly thinking, well, what's going on there? And they begin to realize, well, actually, yeah, drugs will the, – the, the actual development of the drugs and the testing of drugs and the, and the delivery of drugs will always be a critical part of their business. But the 
the software and the data side is increasing. Obviously, they have always had data in terms of the the testing of the drugs, and but that's more regulatory and so forth. But I, I'm talking now about a new side of their business emerging, which is they're developing apps. So um, I think absolutely data is critical. I think it isn't just the obvious places like the Facebooks of this world or the Googles. I think it is permeating more and more industry sectors. I think the those IP functions that are on the ball are realizing actually this is something we also need to consider. Um, in many cases, it will be trade secrets. Although you might find, for example, that the the raw data is maybe even public information, but it's the process data that's a trade secret. Or you might find the raw data is in the public domain. The algorithms are patent protected and then our, our trade secret, and then the process data is a trade secret, or the reverse. So when we say data, remember it, it, you have to go a little bit deeper and say, are we talking about raw data we're generating? Are we talking about raw data coming from third parties? Are we talking about where's the, where do we really see the value? Is it the algorithm that's really available to us, and actually we're less concerned about the data, or is it the process data that's really valuable to us? So um, you see people sort of dissecting data more and more, and then sort of understanding where's the real value and then how do we protect what we think of is a value and how do we um, maybe have a different approach to other components of the data, if that makes sense. But yes, I, I fully agree yeah. data is growing in importance and it isn't just the obvious places where you would think about it. I see it coming up in more and more, uh, even in, in startups and, and, and scale-up companies, they begin to realize, or at least the clever ones, they begin to realize that this is a really interesting component of our intangible assets. You've raised some fascinating points. Obviously, we're also seeing that in the in the non-obvious spaces. So, for example, we're doing some really interesting work with emergent biotech businesses who are really what we're, what we're calling tech bio. So they're fundamentally software and data businesses first, operating in the life sciences space. So, A, they have some core IP around biology, but B, they've got a strong software capability. And then C, they have a centralized database and they're using that technology. But now, unlike traditional life sciences, sharing that fundamental tech with people outside their business and enabling them to build um, new drugs, develop new drugs on that platform. And it's actually the data network effects which is the value of that business in time. So we're seeing that also, Donald, in kind of non-obvious yep. spaces. Because everyone recites Facebook and Amazon and, and Google around data networker effects, but we're seeing some amazing transformational changes in industries which are uh, non-obvious, like logistics, for example, yep. where looking from the outside, you just think it's the tangibles, it's the ships, it's the containers. But the real game they're playing now is all the data from the sensors and using yeah. those using those network effects to process that data and yield new value. So yeah, you're spot on with that. So so with this trend, Donald, is there new practice around protecting the IP of that process data or proprietary data? Are you seeing anything around that? Because that, that well, looks like a case which potentially which could be massive in the future. Well, um, it's linked back to the point there you made about the company sort of this network. I think the the clever IP 
folks as well in-house are beginning to realize that more and more, no company is an island these days. You're part of an ecosystem. So it could be a more traditional ecosystem where you have your suppliers and your collaboration partners and your customers and you start to control those relationships. But of course, then you've got these newer ecosystems where you're collaborating with communities. I mean, open source software would be an example or whatever. So you're having to rewire your or redo your IP strategy. It's no longer just sufficient that your IP strategy is done when you gain an understanding of your own business. You've got to look across your entire ecosystem now and say, well, actually, my IP strategy, which includes how I'm going to protect my my intangible assets, I've got to look at an ecosystem. So uh, as a result, it's not just any more patents and trademarks and stuff like that. It's it's the IP provisions and agreements, the obvious agreements and the non-obvious agreements. And I'll, I'll explain that point shortly. But the companies these days are they're not connected which means they've got hundreds of thousands of connections to the traditional suppliers the guys who i buy the widgets from and so forth but my collaboration partners my app developer my the company who builds my website uh, my the guy who are who's hosting my st- stuff on the cloud my and so forth so you've got you've got this ecosystem you've got to manage and of course in almost all cases there's an agreement of one sort or another. Now, some of them are what I would call obvious agreements where I sit down with you across the table and we put together in, first of all, an NDA and then a collaboration agreement or a supplier agreement and we work through the provisions of that agreement and we think about what are going to be the IP provisions and so forth. So that's the obvious one. And, and if you're anyway half decent, you should at least understand what's involved in doing that. But then you've got the non-obvious agreements. Um if I use Amazon cloud-based services, there's a terms and conditions of use. And in there, there are IP provisions. If I used, if I use LinkedIn, I'm a heavy LinkedIn user. You read the terms and conditions of use and suddenly realize, actually, there's IP provisions in here. If you talk about software, well, software is eating the world, but open source is eating software. So if I use any open source components or libraries, there's an agreement. And that is in essence, an IP agreement. Um, if I if I work with researchers in universities or access some of their publications, there's a Creative Commons license of, of one sort. If I'm embracing data sets from public sources, there might be an open access license. And you look at those agreements, and you suddenly realize they're asking me no questions about the tangible assets of my company all of these licenses are all about intangible assets of one sort or another. What is it? Ownership, usage, uh, various conditions and so forth. So nowadays when you're managing your IP portfolio, it isn't the obvious portfolio you've got to manage. Yes, you've got to manage your patents, you've got to manage your trademarks. Then you've got to start managing your non-registered assets, your trade secrets, your domain names, your copyright. Then you've got this also this portfolio of licenses you've got to manage. And again, it's not just the obvious ones, the ones I signed yesterday and I got the, the CEO or whatever just to sign off. It's the non-obvious licenses. And so, and many of these are touching things like, uh, where's, where am I getting my source code from? Where am I getting my raw data from? And what are the terms and conditions of use and so forth? So th- this is, I mean, it, it's making the job of the in-house IP manager 
even more challenging because you've got to manage quite a portfolio of of assets and some might think and it's the reason i think why some are still down the lower leagues is that some ip managers still see themselves as i'm the patent manager or i'm the trademark manager i'm thinking no no your job is the ip manager if it if it is any a relationship to ip of any sort then it sits on your shoulders and i think that's why unfortunately some are still down there that they haven't woken up to the fact that the job is actually much broader than perhaps they originally thought. Yeah, yeah, this is interesting, Donald, because you've mentioned the word non-obvious a couple of times, and I agree with you, that statement's fair. But that statement is also really concerning because that software eating the world statement was coined by Mark Andreessen in 2011. Like it's, it's nigh on a decade old now. And data being the new oil is very 2013, 2014 in terms of just that school of thought being out there in, in, in all industries. So why are we so behind in looking at this amazing opportunity where, in fact, software is eating the world, but we're getting to a point where data is actually writing software and actually writing the code. But why do you think we're so far behind on um, all these other industries and there's hundreds out there who haven't got their arms around this wonderful opportunity from an IP standpoint, from a governance standpoint, from an, a compelling proactive standpoint. Why do you think we're so behind the curve from a from an IP manager viewpoint or a head of R&D viewpoint? What's the context behind that? The job spec has sort of grown so fast, so quickly. Um, you know, the... It, the whole way the world works today, the, the 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 companies embracing technology, the internet, the companies embracing open or collaborative forms of innovation, the fact that the things like the software and the data have grown, IP is finding it really hard to keep up. That's one problem I see. That um, and it, of course you can't tell business and the world to slow down while we get our act together that's not going to happen we have to figure out how what what role does ip play have in this new world now um you see it i mean if you if you just even take take one ip model like open source i mean 10 years ago there were events and conferences taking place where the most of the focus was on what the hell is open source now, we're way beyond that. Today, open source is fully um, embraced. These days, it's more about, okay, how do you make sure it works to your advantage and how do you make sure it you mitigate the risks? So no longer is there a discussion about what is open source. That's We're way beyond that. If you didn't take a similar IP model, another IP model, trade secrets, today we're at the point of what is that? That's what the discussion is. What is it? Because we're trying to catch up and say, uh, well, what is it and how, how sh- what should I do? So in 10 years' time, we'll be way beyond that. It'll be, we'll be like where open source is today. It'll be, so what I see is that, that the world is moving much faster than where, and how than the pace at which we operate. And we're having oftentimes just to catch up. And it depends on the, on the model or the specific form of IP or the process. So I see... I see certain IP activities where 
we're trying to figure out what the hell is it and how do we play the game. Others are further ahead. Um, so, I, I, like I said, I, I, I saw open source 10 years ago and all the discussion was, well, what, what is open source? We're not there now. We've, 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 been, we've moved ahead a little bit. I see the same thing with trade secrets today. Trade secrets are most of the discussion is, what is it? But in 10 years' time, it'll be a very different discussion. Um, I think with data, maybe we're, we're at the point in IP of saying, well, how do we, how do we protect it? What, what, we're, we're asking fairly fundamental questions, whereas maybe in a few years we'll be beyond that and it'll be more, okay, now we already figured that out. Now we've got to figure out the next stage. Um, I see with risk at the moment, risk, it's, it's interesting. Um, IP risk management. Um, in the last few months, we've seen some interesting developments. We've seen the emergence of, of standards that actually IP management standards that start talking about what is expected of a company or an organization when it comes to IP risk management. We've seen entities arrange dedicated conferences and seminars on IP risk management. So at the moment, in, if you take one key IP process, namely IP risk management, we're at the point where we're asking fundamental questions like, well, what is it? And, you know, three or four mm. years down the road, I'm hoping that we're at the point where we're saying, well, we already know what it is. Now we're trying to figure out how do we do it efficiently and effectively. So we, we seem to be run, we seem to be always trying to catch up in the world of IP. But maybe that's maybe that's no different from any other function, um, finance or HR or IT. But I often see us that we... we we come to a point where there's suddenly a realization, this is actually important. We need to get our act together. And then it takes us a while to actually get our act together. And often it's driven by the fact that the outside world is just moving very, very fast and things are changing. Is it fair to say that there's a lot of catch up in terms of designing the actual role charter for a modern day head of IP, head of IP strategy, IP manager, call it what have you. You see so many different job titles on LinkedIn now linked to IP. Do you think there, there needs to be a fast, strong evolution around what the actual job looks like day to day and, and who a head of IP should partner with in a broader sense in, a, in an organization? Yeah, and I think you see some companies appointing a, a chief IP officer, which I think is a, a very smart move. Um, but yeah, clearly the the role of an if you have an innovative creative company that is going places, you need somebody in there who really has a a broad view of what IP is all about and has a really good understanding of the different ways you can play this game and how to make sure that IP adds value and is not adding risk to the business. So yes, I think that um, some some clever thinking is needed to to really move forward uh, the role of a of an in-house IP manager. And um, I mean, I've written about this. I know others have as well as what really is the role of a of a chief, chief IP officer. And it is not, that role is not the same as what you see in some companies as someone who just says, well, I'm, I'm a trademark manager, I'm a patent manager. And think, well, that's, there's a difference. Um, and even the title, yeah, chief IP officer, I would expect much more from that individual than I would from somebody who's responsible for the management of a particular asset class within the umbrella of, of IP. And, and, and in terms of now spinning off into a different dimension, 
in a broader sense, the pattern system, looking at it from its first principles, right? It's been around for well over, well, 100 years. Do you see that changing with the rise of blockchain and it's moving fast? We can see, obviously, a bellwether moment with Elon putting $1.5 billion of Bitcoin on the company's balance sheet. Michael Saylor before that with MicroStrategy. So that is linked to, well, adjacently linked to how blockchain and, and digital assets will impact so many different business processes. So are you seeing some compelling movements around how the actual notion of a patent might be challenged via technologies like timestamping, blockchain, digital assets, tokenization? Are you seeing any murmurs of potential sea changes in the industry as a whole? Well, I think all of the forms of IP are under some stress. Um, obviously, we've been through a period in patents, particularly in the US, with patent reform for a number of years that has ha, has had some impact on the world of patents, at least as far as US patents are concerned, uh, and implicated in, in areas like software patents and business meta patents. I think the reform in the US has meant that, don't get me wrong, patents are extinct, still extremely important, but I think the reform has meant that it's been a little bit more challenging to obtain a patent, particularly in certain areas. Uh, it is a little bit harder to keep your patent alive. It's easier for others to knock you off your pedestal, and it is slightly harder to enforce your patents. But uh, so a subtle change of patent has, in the world of patents has already taken place. But we see the same thing with copyright there's been a lot of discussions about whether copyrights fit for purpose in in the internet and digital world and of course we've had recent developments with in europe with regard to uh, copyright particularly um uh, in the in the conflict let's say between the creators of of copyrighted material and and the the um consumers particularly if it's if it's on social media platforms and so forth so there's copyrights under stress um, we've seen tremendous change in trade secret laws. It's gone from being sort of a neglected stepchild to suddenly a much more interesting form of IP because of quite dramatic changes in a very short period of time. You know, Japan trade secret law, 2016, US federal trade secret law, European directive, China going through a number of changes on their perhaps most important law to do with trade secrets. They have a, a collection of different rules, but the anti-unfair competition law in Think 17, 18, and 19, they've made changes. So I think to answer your question in one way in a roundabout way is all the forms of IP are going through some some change because of various pressures and uh, people feeling out, do, do they need to be adjusted to, 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 to better suit where we are? Then you, you then raise the issue of, of, of emerging technology like AI and, and blockchain. And... Um, well, it's, it opens up a whole instinct kind of worms in the quest. There's lots of issues when you when you put patents and blockchain and AI into the same sentence. Uh, you have the question about do you allow AI to be an inventor, which uh, um, that would take us for the rest of this week or the rest of this month to discuss. Because I'm still I don't even I don't even know what my opinion is on this one because. Um, I, I can see both sides of the argument on that one. 
and let, let, we may not go there today, but um, I suppose my current position is on AI. I, 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 I personally would be uncomfortable if I saw the name of a computer as the inventor on a patent. Uh, I just, I think we've got to think carefully about going there. Then on blockchain, now blockchain is an interesting technology. Um, obviously, from if I put on a trade secret hat on, I see it in, as an interesting protection mechanism. Uh, I see it as a way of, of, of perhaps better handling when there are transactions of trade secrets between one company and another. How do you make sure that if I transfer something highly confidential to you, how do I have a record that this transaction has taken place and how do you know that you've received what I sent you? So I see it having a useful case there. On patents, I'm still not sure um, where where it really adds value. Is it is it to? I mean, there as, as you well know, there are there are some interesting data integrity issues in the world of patents. Um, everything from confirmation that these inventors are actually the inventors and have contributed to um, if there are reassignments of patents, how do you clearly understand that the patent was moved to um, licensing of patents to make sure that actually that we can map, for example, a patent to a license or even a patent to a product. So I can I can see blockchain having some interesting applications to address some weaknesses at key steps on the, the patenting process. Um, I probably haven't given it enough thought yet as to where are the right fits, but I can definitely see it. Um, now whether we're there yet or not, I'm not too sure. So um, long-winded answer to your question. I think all of the forms of IP are under pressure. Yeah, I mean, that, and that, the yeah, and technology has a role to play. I think the emerging technologies have a role to play, but some of them unnerve me, particularly the the AI being an inventor. I think I'm still in my gut having concerns about that one, but... Uh, Maybe my position will change over time. What makes you nervous about that one? I'd love to unpack that, Donald, where a machine actually is the inventor and <laughs> on a pattern. What's the piece that unnerves you on that front? Um, a patent system is like a three-legged stool. You've got to, you've got to make sure that it... it takes three perspectives into account. Obviously, does the the inventor, maybe a loan inventor, or an employee of a company, or whatever. So you've got to look at it from their perspective. Then you've got to look at it from the perspective of the fact that these patents are published. So you've got to look at it from the perspective of other companies out there who want to take that innovation and build upon it and further enhance it and so forth. And then, and often that's what's discussed, the inventor versus who can use that patent and the rights of the inventor versus the rights of others too. But then there's a third leg to the stool, which is Joe Public. Society. And they've also got to benefit from the patenting system. And I sometimes think we, we've got to think about how will um, – you, you can explain to someone who's not – who's a lay person when it comes to IP – the benefits of patents to say, well, the inventor needs some, they've spent their time and energy coming up with this idea and developing it and testing it and so forth. And the patent system is to sort of give some sort of 
acknowledgement for their contribution to society and that we give them this patent right. We give them this limited period of exclusivity. And Joe probably, if I talk to my mum or my sister who's not aware of IP, they get it. They say, oh yeah, I get, I get the argument. But then at some point that patent is published and others at some after others can then grow and develop. And so I get that point. But then you say, well, actually, we want to reward a computer. Now I'm a little bit concerned. Is Joe Public going to turn off the patent system? Because how do you mean reward a computer? It's a, it's a dumb piece of machinery. You know, if I unplug it, it stops working. Okay, these are very sophisticated pieces of machinery. But do we need to reward a machine? That's my, my concern. Are we going to... Are we going to fundamentally change what the patent system is about if the person, if the entity we were trying to protect is a machine? That's my concern. Now, I must admit, I haven't thought through this yet because I'm still, I have lots of coffee table discussions with, uh, or virtual coffee table discussions with colleagues of mine and so forth. And sometimes I'm at the point where I think, okay, yes, I get it. I understand now why we need to be able to allow to have an AI machine as the inventor. But other times I'm thinking, are we going somewhere that's going to really mess things up? So I'm not the right person to perhaps discuss this because I don't know what's the right answer here. I really don't know what the right thing to do is when it comes to, should we allow AI machines to be inventors? And a broader topic, which we here at PatSnap have worked years to educate the community about is, that connective tissue within the enterprise or a government or an academic institution around linking and other teams around IP. Where do you think we're at on that journey on IP being well connected to the R&D organization, to the board, to corporate strategy, corporate development, marketing, sales? Are we in, to use your analogy, are we in division two, one, the premiership? Where are we on that journey? Uh, still a long way to go. If I just highlight some examples, I remember being at a workshop that uh, HMRC in the UK, the tax authorities organized a couple of years ago when they launched the Patent Box. The Patent Box is an initiative to give some tax incentives to encourage innovation and creativity. And obviously, one of their key metrics was was, was the patenting of those companies. And uh, it was interesting, uh, and the Patent Box regime in the UK requires you on being able to create a very simple link between the patent you own and the product you have developed and it's on sale in the marketplace. So you'd say, well, fairly simple. Just, of course, if you have patents and you have products, it should be a no-brainer linking your own patents to your own products. And yet there were people in the audience who were saying, well, actually, that's quite challenging. Now, they weren't asked to link patents to other people's products. They were asked to link, link their products to the, their patents to their own products. And even that was a challenge. Now, you, and people listening in might be saying, well, how come that's a challenge? But yes, for, for companies with large patent portfolios and large product SKUs, that's an interesting challenge for a lot of companies. So joining the dots between IP and other things, either your own products. Uh, we talked already about finance. You go into the finance community and say, well, when I go through your books, it doesn't seem to have much mention of your of our IP. There's big challenges linking those two together. Um, unless it's a sort of a, an acquisition or M&A and so forth, in many cases, the finance guys are continuing their activities without much thought given to whether we should join the dots between what the IP folks are doing 
and what we're doing in the finance community. Um, so I think IP has a lot of work to do to join the dots between what it's up to and what it's managing and so forth and what's going on in other parts of the organization, um, regardless of the form of IP. Um, um, I know because of the strengthening of trade secret laws, I know of some companies now who are trying to have a much more engagement between the IP folks and the HR community because of employment, uh, because some trade secrets get unfortunately stolen by their own employees. And the HR people are saying, well, we need to better understand who of our own employees have access to our very valuable trade secrets. And the IP folks are saying, well, I don't know. So there are lots of links, uh, IP and HR, IP and finance, IP in R&D, IP in marketing. Um, and, and and again, maybe it's it's back to looking at ourselves in the mirror. Um, there was an interesting study. I think there have been two studies done. One was done by a major London-based IP firm. They looked at the characteristics within their of their staff. And another one was done by a, an operating company, again, looked at the characteristics of their legal IP function. There are a lot of, I think it's INTJ is the Myers-Briggs characteristics within Within, within the IP community, uh, INTJs, if I got it right, are um, typically loners, typically like working in the detail, very intelligent, very uh, very good at solving problems, but maybe lack some of the softer skills, the communicating, the networking. So again, maybe look in the mirror, we need maybe some networkers to come into IP to help us uh, in this joining the dots with other parts of the organization. So um, wh wh how to solve these problems is, is rather complex. I think it's both a combination of hard skills and soft skills you need to break some of, down, break some of these barriers down. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned about the soft skills. We are seeing that within the R&D organization. So there was a great piece and in innovation leader for from I think he's still currently the head of R and D from the Kellogg's Group in the US. Uh, I think it's a chap called Nigel Hughes, and he talks about, "Yep, I'm looking for my R and D team to have the technical chops that that's bread and butter, but my new generation of recruits have to be storytellers. They have to yeah. be great at pitching to the rest of the organization. So not the INTJ type profile, but have some sales chops in their DNA. Yeah. It, yeah. Is that something you're seeing, which is room for improvement? Or are you seeing industries where folks in the IP department do have those softer skills where they're storytellers and, and good at presenting in front of the board or other departments? I think the I think the you see it about in-house functions that begin to realize that um, the soft skills are are really critical. The, the ability to communicate, uh, both manage uh, vert, um, in parallel and horizontal across to other key functions, but also be able to communicate better to uh, senior management. You see IP functions thinking about, for example just the very nature of the way they report to senior management, the use of, of visuals, uh, um, getting key messages across, you know. Um, I mean, we all know in the IP community, very good attorneys, but you wouldn't put them in front of an R&D group because they get murdered because they lack that, some, they lack that communication skill. They'll, they, they, they may know, 
patents inside out. They may know the nuances of office actions in Uzbekistan, but you don't put them in front of an R&D group because they can't explain to a non-IP community. Um, so I think the in-house functions, if they're anyway clever, begin to realize that these soft skills are really critical. You didn't see it inside in the IP firms. Um, more and more IP firms are beginning to realize that these skills are important um, in, first of all, forging links with new clients, in maintaining the relationships with existing clients, in better explaining the service offering they have to their operating company clients. Um, I, I know of uh, one law firm recently, um, this is before the, the, the pandemic, um, I mentioned, I met one of them for a coffee and he was saying that they've hired some some new graduates. And he said, instantly this year, we didn't hire the top guys. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, normally we'd have just looked at the scores and picked the guy who was top of his class. But this year we actually went through and we did a sort of interactive session. And we ha they hired one guy and he said he, he wasn't the top in the class, but actually he can tell a story. He's got this soft skills down and we felt we needed a few of those. So I, I, I'm aware that IP firms are realizing that the relationships and the way they manage it and they manage those relationships is just as important as having the people inside who, who can understand exactly how to get you IP protection or how can get you out of a, a, a risky IP issue. Um, you still have, unfortunately, have the traditionalists who, who think that uh, everything is more to do with the legal matters and, and so forth. But uh, I'm saying, at least in the network I have, I think people are beginning to realize this is important. Um, but, uh, okay. and yeah. I think that the, the, the clever IP firms are, are realizing this, that the, the, the nature of the relationships they have and maintaining those relationships I and mean, communicating is, is critical. Brilliant. Well, Donald, this has been an awesome overview of your journey and, and your latest thoughts on this wonderful thing <laughs> that we're really passionate about. Just some complete random fun now. We've kind of have a bit of a fun, random, quick fire round. Okay. So in terms of books that you most regularly gift to friends or family, any recommendations? Oh, um, now, this may sound strange. My favorite book in the world is Fear and Loading uh, in Las Vegas, Las Vegas, which is a really strange book. Uh, it's the only book I've ever read where I laughed out loud in an airplane and embarrassed myself because I, I was just laughing. No, it's not an IP book at all. It's just a, a fun book to read. Um, I must admit, these days, the books I'm reading are books that would be that would resonate with my 10-year-old daughter because I'm doing a lot of homeschooling. So I can recommend lots of books that are at that level at the moment. But uh, ah, books. Um, um, the last book I read is a book, actually, an, the last IP book is a, a good friend of mine, Raymond Hegarty, has written an, an IP strategy book. It's actually, actually a very short book for... Uh, C-suite executives to understand IP. Um, sorry, I've gone blank, Raymond. What's the name, the title of his book? Um, it came out a couple of months ago, and it was very, it's, it's very short. And it's just, it's the type of book, if you were on a, 
okay, you may not be doing it too much these days, but if you were a two hour flight and you had nothing to do, you'd read it in the two hours. And it's just trying to get the C-suite to understand IP. Sorry, I'm gone blank. I'll think of the title in a minute. No worries worries on that one. And and extraterrestrial life, believer or non-believer and why? Absolutely, there's there's life out there. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the the size of the universe. I mean, the opposite is to believe that there's nothing else out there. That's even scarier. So absolutely. Um, I mean, you look up at the sky at night, particularly I'm in a rural part, and of course with lockdown, things are a bit quieter, so there's less traffic and less noise out there and so forth. And you look out and see how it's out there. All those stars and all those planets. And our little planet is zooming through space. I mean, we're, we're what is it? We're turning around every t- 24 hours. We're going, taking a year to get around the sun. This little galaxy of ours is heading off in one direction. I'd be really worried if someone told me for definite that we're the only thing out here. I'm thinking that doesn't make any sense. So I'm an absolute believer. I, the thing that worries me though is I think we sometimes think that what else is out there is somewhat like us or maybe got a bigger head or eight arms. But maybe what what's out there is completely different from us. You know, it may be something that we don't even recognize as being something, but there's got to be something out there. Excellent, Donald. We'll really appreciate you taking time out and spending time with Innovation Capital. And, and please stay safe thank, and please stay well. Thank you very much for uh, And uh, hopefully my ramblings have made some sense. Thank you. Be safe. And that is it for today's interview with Donald O'Connell. I would like to take this time to thank Donald for coming on the podcast today and sharing his ideas, wisdom, and story with us all. Uh, If you listened up until this point, thank you so much. Hit that subscribe button. Share this out with a friend. Everything helps. Uh, But we want to give you something here at PatSnap. We want to help you spark an impactful discussion around innovation within your organization. Uh, You can go ahead and download our free copy of our ebook the Connected Innovation Intelligence Blueprint. In this completely free ebook, we will explore what connected innovation intelligence is and how the world's disruptors are using it to grow, compete, and win in a hyper-competitive world. To get your free copy of this, all you have to do is go to patsnap.com forward slash blueprint. Again, that is patsnap.com forward slash blueprint. Until next time, continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious.